I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal, and today our guest is David Carpenter, an M&A partner at Mayor Brown in New York and the New York corporate practice leader. David, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, David. Thanks for having me. So I look forward to our chat. So we're going to talk first a little bit about your background, how you came to practice M&A. Secondly, you were for one of your most important clients, Nestle. And finally, your love of wine and the wine project on which you and your wife have relatively recently embarked. So with that, tell us a little bit about how you got into the practice. So I'm I'm basically a, a lifer at Mayor Brown, with the exception of a, of a couple of years where I served as the general counsel of the client. I joined Mayor Brown actually as a summer associate in 1986, and then as an associate in 87. I then spent a couple of years in Chicago, and then I moved with Mayor Brown to London, to the London office of Mayor Brown, which predated the uh, Roe and Ma merger. And so I was the ninth or 10th lawyer to go to the London office. I ended up doing a lot of cross-border M&A work while I was there under a mentor of mine by the name of Jeff Gordon, uh, who retired a couple of years ago. But that's where I, I got my passion for doing you know, both M&A work and cross-border work, which has been the sort of foundation of my practice for the last 20 years. And, and then you moved back to Chicago. Yeah, this was in uh, 19... 93, I moved back. So I spent four years in London. In 93, I came back to Chicago. And, you know, there I was a six-year associate. And, you know, the partnership opportunity was right around the corner. So, you know, just buckled down and worked the crazy hours the profession requires. I made partner in 1997 while I was in Chicago and then joined uh, Metal Management, which was a company that I was doing um, acquisition work for, M&A work for. I spent three years there it was a very, very interesting job. And I, I learned to be the client for a little while as well, which was very helpful. I also had responsibility there for human resources, environmental and safety matters, you know, legal affairs. And it was a public company, so also handling the public reporting. So it was something that really rounded out my knowledge and skill set quite well uh, before I came back to, to Mayor Brown a couple of years later. So how did you end up doing work for Nestle? And how did you think about building a practice after spending three years in-house at a client? Because that can be a challenging transition. You know, I had done a lot of work in the REIT space before I left Mayor Brown and, you know, frankly, didn't find it the most invigorating sort of work. And so when I came back to Mayor Brown in, in 2001, I basically had a blank slate. And I had done a little bit of work for Nestle, you know, as an associate and, and maybe as a very young partner before I left. And one of the first things I did when I came back to Mayor Brown was to get on an airplane and fly to Switzerland and, and visit with the contacts that I had there. And, you know, within a couple of weeks, they had called me back and given me a, a nice piece of work related to a joint venture in Latin America that they were pursuing with the New Zealand Dairy Board, now known as Fonterra. And so that was sort of the beginning of the relationship with Nestle that has really continued since then. Could, could you identify a couple of deals you worked on for them that were particularly significant in your developing the relationship or that were just challenging or interesting for you to put together? Yeah. So the first one, which really was a, a milestone transaction, because it was a it was the first real major piece of work that, that Nestle had given the Mayor Brown 
was the acquisition of Chef America, which is better known by its product, which is Hot Pockets and Lean Pockets. So that was a deal that I did for the first time with the Nestle M&A team in the U.S. And although you know it wasn't the most difficult deal, we were dealing with some sellers on the other side that you know were you know they were great entrepreneurs, but they you know they had no idea what they were doing when it came to M&A. And so it was a bit of a challenging transaction. And there were a couple of things that happened during the course of the negotiations that I think, you know, the Nestle folks appreciated the way Mayor Brown handled it. And after that transaction, basically the floodgates have opened since then. And we've been involved in some of their largest transactions. So the acquisition of Novartis Medical Nutrition, Gerber Products Company, the sale of the Ortega a Mexican food business. And then more recently, we've been helping them in conjunction with their shift from a just a food company to a health and wellness company. So we've done a lot of work for Nestle Nutrition. We did the, the acquisition of, it was an 11, almost $12 billion deal acquisition of Pfizer's infant nutrition business. We helped them acquire Jenny Craig. And then actually they sold Jenny Craig a couple of years later. Uh, we did that deal as well. But then more recently, they've moved to the nutrition and pharmaceutical space. So we helped them with the acquisition of Atrium Innovations, which is a supplements and vitamins company. We recently helped them to acquire Zenpep, which is a drug that they acquired from Allergan as part of the divestiture requirement when Allergan merged with AbbVie. And then this past year, we helped them on immune therapeutics. Those are just few of the probably, I would say, 25 to 30 deals we've done with Nestle you know, in the last 15 years or so. Nestle is a global corporation headquartered in Switzerland with large operations all over the world. How do you go about managing the series of relationships at a client like that? Yeah, well, when you think about it, you really do have five or six different clients when you're dealing with Nestle. You're dealing with the headquarters on a transaction like the Pfizer nutrition deal because you know, that's a global transaction. There were 80 different jurisdictions that we were dealing with in that transaction. So there you're dealing with the headquarters. But then you have, you know, Nestle Waters, which we, we've been handling the sale of Nestle Waters recently. You have the nutrition business, which is anchored by Gerber and then the baby food lines. And then you have uh, the sort of Nestle USA, which has the frozen food business, the Carnation product. And so the the more you know, mainstream businesses that are going into the grocery channel. The other significant piece of work that we did was to help them move the needle in their coffee business by acquiring the consumer products and food service business of Starbucks. And you had mentioned that you spent about three years in-house as a general counsel. How did that change how you think about interacting with clients as an outside advisor? Being in-house gave me a, a great appreciation of what the client's expectations were relative to their outside counsel. So, you know, I worked with a lot of outside law firms at the time. And frankly, Mayor Brown was one of the firms that I did quite a bit of work with when I was out there. And in addition to the learning experience that I had there, I also honed what my view was on expectations of the client in terms of service delivery and quality of product. You know, I had worked with a lot of law firms that didn't necessarily put the same attention to detail as as some of the, the better firms that I worked with. And you know, it was clear what the firms that were succeeding were doing versus what some of the others 
who were potentially successful in various niches, but just didn't deliver the same sort of uh, quality work product. And finally, David, let's talk a little bit about wine. How did you get into wine? And then we'll discuss your current wine project. So a lot of times it's the same with many other people is you get into wine because of somebody else you're with. And in my case, it's really my wife that was the driver of our journey into winemaking and and drinking wine. After our kids left home to go to college, you know, my wife found herself with a lot of time on her hands and not particularly interested in doing the classic thing that a you know suburban housewife might do, like sit on boards of directors of charities and, and things like that. So she started studying wine and she you know is a certified sommelier with several of the wine education organizations. And, and basically through her studying of wine, which actually led to her going out to California and harvesting uh, for about four seasons in a row with Paul Hobbs, I was learning you know alongside with her. And Paul Hobbs, is, his winery is based in Sonoma. And because we were spending so much time there, we started looking at properties there where we could buy a home and potentially build a vineyard. And we did that about six years ago or so in the town of Forestville or right near Forestville. We bought a house and put in a, an acre and a half vineyard. And last year was the first year of production, although we didn't sell anything because we, we just had really enough bottles last year to satisfy the demand for my daughter's wedding late last year. So this year is the first year where, where we actually have about only 60 cases of production, about a ton of grapes. And because of the fires in California this year, you know what she decided to do was to make a rosé again. We had made rosé last year and then experiment with a, a white Pinot Noir. And the reason why we, we decided to do that this year was because of the fires in California. You know, the fires impact the skins and, and they can impart a, a nasty flavor and, and some chemicals that you don't want in your wines. So she chose to do a process this year where you were pressing the grapes, but off of the skins. So there wasn't contact of the skins into the juice that was made. And so we have about 60 cases of rosé this year and then another 10 cases, I think it is, of white Pinot Noir. And the winemaker who is helping my wife do this, a guy by the name of Justin Siderfeld, he said that this white Pinot was the best wine he's ever made. And, uh, you know, he's worked for a number of, of wineries, including Rodney Strong, where he's been in charge of production of their high-end wines. And he really just loves the uh, characteristics that come out of this uh, vineyard that we have in, uh, in California in Sonoma. Because you and your wife make wine, David, have you focused on rootstock and clones and how the vines are trained, or do you not get down to that level of detail? You know, I, I don't personally, but I, I've, I've gotten the opportunity to observe all of that just by being in the room while the conversations are taking place. So my wife was out there planting the rootstock when it was done, and you learn a ton about winemaking. I mean, for example, the rootstock is just a vessel, right, that delivers the nutrients to the grapes. You could start with any rootstock and put a different grape on that. And in the vineyard, you can go from having Cabernet one year and switching out that to Sauvignon Blanc if you chose to change it that way. So it's interesting. I always thought that it was all one homogenous sort of plant, but it's not really. I mean, through science, it's not that way anymore. You know, as an owner of one of these businesses, albeit on a small scale, 
Are there any observations you've taken from your work with Nestle that are applicable even for a small higher-end producer? That's a good question. I had, I kind of look at the wine world that we've been, other than I, I'll give you a little bit of background on some other things we're doing, but the winemaking aspect of our wine interest is completely devoid of any tie to what I do on a daily basis, um, which is nice because it's a neat escape, the day to day work. The only connection with work is at the end of the day, after a long, hard day on the phone and, and negotiating and doing all that kind of stuff, it's really nice to pop open a bottle of wine <laughs> and, and just you know put your feet up and enjoy the evening. But where my legal skills have come into play, mixing in with the wine world is about five years ago or so, because of my wife's connection in the wine industry, we were asked to help support a group of filmmakers who were putting together the second in a series of films in the Psalm series. So the first Saw movie was a quite famous movie. I think you've seen it, David, that followed four guys who were studying for the Master Sommelier exam. And it became really a cult hit in the wine industry. And since since that time, there's been two additional Psalm films that have been done. And then there is a fourth one in the works right now. And all of this to be said is we helped the filmmakers to put together a company that was going to be focused on, you know, making documentaries. And this was going to be documentaries outside of the wine industry. But the popularity of what they were doing within the wine industry just sort of made it difficult for them to do anything but focus on food and wine. And so in about a year and a half ago or so, we launched the streaming network called Psalm TV. And Psalm TV is an educational wine streaming service that provides both sort of entertainment, wine tastings, you know, where there's two masters or two very knowledgeable wine people who are, you know, essentially trying to trick each other into guessing the wrong wine. And, you know, it's just a lot of fun to be involved in the wine industry and sharing, you know, all the knowledge that there is out there through this uh, Sum TV. And where it came into my role in it was, you know, I know how to raise money for companies. So I helped the founders and, and my wife, who's a principal in the business to put together the necessary papers so that they can market this this business and bring in some investors. So, so they've had a, a nice run of bringing in investors and you know the world is their oyster right now. I think Som TV is sitting in a really sweet spot within the streaming industry where the, the way it differentiates itself is it's actually a content company that happens to have a streaming service alongside of it. So they're developing content every day that's fresh and and that people can follow as opposed to licensing stuff from somebody else and then putting it all in one spot. So theirs is all original content. And then a little bit of licensing stuff, you know, you'll find a year in Burgundy and some things like that on the site as well that, that that's available, you know, that you can find for lease as well. In the, the Psalm movies and on Psalm TV, you, you know, you, you can see a, a number of New York's best sommeliers. <laughs> Where in New York, when it's when we're not in a pandemic, do you enjoy drinking wine? Which sommeliers do you most enjoy interacting with? So in New York, our go-to place to drink wine is Aldo Psalm's Wine Bar. And Aldo Psalm is, is you know, he's he's not one of the students in the Psalm films, but he's certainly featured prominently as a as an expert. And actually, he's not a master Psalm, but he's every bit as knowledgeable as any of the master Psalms are. But his wine bar in New York just has such a nice mix of global wine choices. And the food is to die for there too. And it's small plates that you can sort of 
mix with different varieties of wine and, and they serve tons of stuff by the glass in addition to by the bottle. So that's clearly, you know, a real go-to spot in New York for uh, somebody who loves wine. Well, his, his staff is fantastic. I mean, you, you you go in there and whoever you get is going to have a, an extraordinary knowledge of their wants. They're, they're, they're all, you know, qualified sommeliers in one way or another, different organizations, but they're all people that have passion to learn more and to share their knowledge with the clients too. So it's a great spot. And then finally, which parts of the wine world over the next year or two do you want to learn more about? What are wines that you're curious about, but you haven't sampled maybe as much? Yeah, so I don't have great familiarity with the Spanish wines, for example. I mean, I've I've certainly drunk uh, a fair number of Italian wines as well, but I've had some sesakayas and the like and some, you know, some second labels of that grape. But I don't know the Italian wine varietals as well as I do some of the others. So Italy is definitely a place I'd like to spend some more time drinking their wines. And then the other uh, area where I'd like to spend a little bit more time learning about their wines is South Africa. My daughter spent a semester abroad in South Africa and we went on a trip to visit Cape Town and uh, spent some time down in Costantia and in, in the wine region there. And they have some delicious wines, some Bordeaux-type blends, some terrific cabs. And they also have the Pinotage, which is a, a very interesting varietal that pairs really well with all sorts of different foods. But it, it is a very special wine. And I would really like to try to get a little bit more knowledge about the South African wines, because from what I've tasted so far, they're absolutely fabulous. David, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, David. Look forward to uh, cracking a bottle with you in New York soon. Absolutely. For Drinks with the Deal, I'm David Marcus.